what would you do if you knew when you were going to die? Would you maybe change your perception of time and how you spend it? Or maybe even your perception of money and the things that we have, our possessions. You might even make a bucket list and do all of the things that you want to do. During a recent staff meeting, Matt shared a devotion about this Before I Die project. Have any of you seen this before? It's popped up in many different places. This is the original. It was in uh, New Orleans. An artist a number of years ago was inspired, uh, I believe, at the death of a close uh, friend of a friend of hers. Uh, and it's very simple. It's just this, this uh, building wall covered with chalkboard paint with the prompt, uh, you can see the big prompt, before I die, but all of those little lines. Before I die, I want to fill in the blank. And passersby who see this are invited uh, to add their own aspirations and desires to this wall. Uh, and it creates quite, quite a tapestry of, of aspirations and, and wishes and desires uh, that people have. Um, and those are about as varied as you can imagine. So one person writes, I want to be an international dancing sensation. Uh, or they do get weird. I want to eat salad with an alien. Or my personal favorite, uh, I want to eat all the candy and sushi in the world. I did not write that one, but I could have. It's a strange combination, but two very delicious things. <laughs> and then, of course, as you, imagine, as you can imagine, they do turn more uh, profound. Not that there's anything less profound about candy and sushi, but I want to teach my grandkids to garden. I want to see peace in the world. I want to find out who I am. Over 5,000 of these before I die walls have appeared in 78 countries and 36 languages. You can go online, you can Google the Before I Die project. You can see all of these walls, including uh, this one, a close-up of this one. You can see even more things uh, people have written. This was uh, from Marquette University here in Milwaukee. Uh, in 2011. I don't think it still exists according to the description. Uh, but so many varied things. And I think like this season of Lent that we've been in over the past several weeks, the Before I Die project invites us or really confronts us with the reality that we are all mortal human beings, that we all will one day die. And it's honest, it's inevitable. But more than that, it also invites us to consider what things are most important to us in the meantime. Lola Munoz was 12 years old when she was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor. And she learned that she would have at most 9 to 12 months to live. Now that's a devastating diagnosis for anybody, let alone a child at 12 years old. But I came across her story this week uh, in an NPR article. And her, sto her, her story and her journey in her final months is quite a remarkable thing. So Lola had initially been paired with a photographer, Mor uh, Moriah Ratner. Uh, this is a picture of, of the, her photographer and Lola together. Uh, as part of an assignment through the Make-A-Wish Foundation. 
Uh, but very quickly, Lola and her family and Mariah, the photographer, decided that they wanted to continue to document her journey, uh, both as an effort to defy stereotypes about childhood cancer, but also to raise awareness uh, and to try to fund or to try to raise awareness for, um, for cure-seeking research. And so Moriah reflects uh, in this essay, Lola did not fear dying, but rather being forgotten. And then in Lola's own words, she says, do you know what the worst part is about having a tumor? The pretending. Pretending like you're better than you feel for the people that pity you, so you can show them that nothing is wrong. The snapshots that Mariah documented of Lola don't pretend. They're honest. They document the ups and downs of her chemo, her clinical trials, and even trying to live life to its fullest in between. Lola was so much less concerned with her own dying, Mariah reflects later, as she was with leaving a legacy. So she participated in these clinical trials, not so much for her own treatment, she wasn't that optimistic, but for the hope of maybe finding a cure for people who come after her. And then when those trials became too much, uh, she stepped back and she was able to regain some energy and to do some of the things that she loved so much. Uh, to learn how to swim, go on family vacations, camping, uh, playing in the snow. Uh, to do these things for as long as she could. Now, Lola died on April 2nd, 2018, just about a year and a half after she was diagnosed, defying even those odds of her diagnosis. But above all else, I think what Lola teaches us is how to live even in the face of death. And so I think her story is appropriate for today, as we transition from palm to passion. In just a few minutes, we're going to hear Luke's passion narrative read in its entirety, the story of Jesus's final days and ultimately final hours of his life on earth. Now, all four Gospels, of course, tell this same story. We probably all know it pretty much by heart with different details from each one, but they all tell it a little bit differently. Matthew and Luke, for instance, as we've heard in recent years, both portray a Jesus who is starkly abandoned by all of his followers, and even by God as he shouts from the cross, why have you forsaken me? And then John, by contrast, that we'll hear a little bit of on Good Friday, portrays Jesus as the Savior who reigns victoriously as he is lifted up on the cross and seemingly in control of everything that happens to him. But then Luke, the gospel that we've been following this year since Advent, Luke comes down somewhere in the middle. Throughout his arrest and trial and crucifixion, Jesus remains unusually calm and collected in the face of everything that's happening, facing death with this kind of tranquility and trust. Now Jesus still faces an intense anguish in the garden, or agony as it's often translated, but not so much in the ordinary sense of that word. 
The Greek agonia refers to something more like uh, an athlete preparing for a match or a competition, just dripping with that nervous sweat in anticipation of what's to come. And so it's in that spirit that Jesus prays in the garden, prepares for his passion, prepares for the trial, the suffering, fully prepared for what's to come. And so even throughout everything that follows, it's remarkable. Jesus continues to show a vested interest in others, much more so than himself. There's the story where he heals the slave of the high priest whose ear Peter had cut off in an act of rash violence in the garden. And then even forgiving those who put him to death as he's hanging from the cross. Father, forgive them. Pardoning and promising life, eternal life, to the repentant thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. This healing, forgiving, pardoning, promising, all of this tied up in what's happening to Jesus. Like Mariah's photographs of Lola's journey with cancer until her death, Luke's passion offers us an honest and poignant snapshot into Jesus's own journey. Lola didn't deny the reality and gravity of her diagnosis, but she did use what time she had left to ensure that she had an impact, to participate in clinical trials, to end those when she needed to regain energy and to connect with her family. And so too in Luke, Jesus never denies the suffering and the death that he is about to face, but he uses those moments to do what he has always done all along, to reach out with forgiveness and healing and God's love and mercy and compassion for the lost and the marginalized, and even those that would actively participate in his arrest and in his death. And so as we hear Luke's telling of the passion read out loud in just a moment, we encounter a story in snapshots. Snapshots of a story of forgiveness and healing through and by Jesus. Snapshots of a story of grace and God's love made known. We will begin uh, to hear this story of the Passion. The words will not be projected on the screen. They'll be read uh, by three voices, uh, and we'll sort of hear them in short bursts, uh, in short scenes, and interject those uh, with, uh, with the singing of a hymn. So since the words are not there, uh, I just invite you um, to hear those words and maybe listen for details that you might not ordinarily uh, hear as we hear this entire story read uh, once more. So we join now in singing the first stanza, Jesus, I will ponder now.
This is the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. When the hour came, Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles with him. Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus did the same with the cup after supper. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But see, the one who betrays me is with me, and his hand is on the table. For the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that one by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to ask one another which one of them it could be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the one who serves. Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you know me. Jesus came out and went, as it was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When Jesus reached the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, and gave him strength. In his anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. When Jesus got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief, and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. While Jesus was speaking, suddenly a crowd came. The one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. 
He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man? When those who were around him saw what was coming, they asked, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And Jesus touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple police, and the elders who came, who had come for him. Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a bandit? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him in the firelight, stared at him and said, This man also was with him. But Peter denied it. Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else on seeing Peter said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not. Then about an hour later, still another kept insisting. Surely this man also was with him, for he is Galilean. Man, I do not know what you are talking about. At that moment, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus began to mock him and beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? They kept heaping many other insults on him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, gathered together, and they brought Jesus to their council. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. Jesus replied, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I question you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. All of them asked, are you then the Son of God? You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Then Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You say so. 
Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no basis for this accusation against this man. 